0: Before um, I read our scripture passage, I just wanna say thank you to Sylvie Pern, who's our director of youth ministry for being our liturgist today and um, for the way that she shepherds and guides the young people of our church, especially our wilderness students who are feeling, I think, very accomplished after um, not only making it out of the wilderness, but also um, being able to speak today, so thank you to all of you. This sermon is for you all. You know what it's like to be in the wilderness, and so I think you'll hear it in a particular way. Um, And I hope that the gift of the wilderness um, will be also a gift for everyone here today. Um, The bulletin has a stained glass window that is from um, Ely, Minnesota, which is up in the Boundary Waters area where we were, near where we were. and it's their Holy Spirit window. And for those of you who picked blueberries in the wilderness, um, I really thought that it was cool that there's a little patch of blueberries down in the bottom of this Holy Spirit window, that um, somebody, whoever made this, um, decided that the Holy Spirit is near us when we eat blueberries in the woods. so i hope that that will inspire you as well we're here in the middle of this sermon series called counting on god we're talking about numbers not the book of numbers just numbers so far we've covered one three five and seven today we're covering the number 12 next week bill Evertsberg will be back and preaching on the number 40 and then right before homecoming sunday we're gonna do 50 uh, and then we're gonna hang it up but I think these numbers have a lot to say. They're very interesting. Um, the number 12 is um, can be divided up in a number of ways. If you divide 12 up into three times four, there's this one theory, this one explanation that says that three is a divine number like what Joe Forrest talked about a couple weeks ago and four is an earthy number associated with, for example, the ancient elements, earth, water, fire, air. And so when you combine them, three times twelve, you get this perfect symbol of unity between heaven and earth, between divine and earthy things. I'm not sure I completely buy into this theory, but it's very interesting that that this number might help us to see creator and creation infinite and finite all at once. Twelve the number 12 appears in various places in our world. We're preparing um, kind of for that football season where the 12th man is um, a very important um, number to a lot of Seattle fans. Um, there are 12 months in the year, 12 inches in a foot, 12 jurors in your courtroom, 12 steps towards sobriety, 12 hours times two in a day and 12 grades before you finish high school. The number 12 kind of orders our life. It gives structure or discipline or a method to the madness, some sort of order in the chaos. In the Bible, the number 12 is scattered across the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most most notably, Jesus has 12 disciples. And scholars believe that Jesus most definitely had 12 disciples, that it's not just uh, symbolic, but it's also symbolic that the number 12 that jesus had 12 followers 12 close disciples because he was following and building on and referencing the 12 tribes of israel those 12 tribes existed to symbolize and stand in for each of the 12 sons of jacob whose name is later changed to israel so the 12 sons of israel There are 12 tribes, 12 brothers, 12 disciples, and so in the Old Testament, this number 12 comes to represent kind of all people in God's community, the whole of God's people. Um, In the same way that when we say all hands on deck or boots on the ground or the head count, we don't just mean hands or boots or heads, we mean the whole person. So it's, it's a way of the The one small part, the twelve signify the whole, all of God's people. Um, so so twelve has this sense of inclusion that all of us are part of the twelve. Um, our scripture passage for today is simply, the calling of the 12 disciples and um, it's really just a list of their names but i hope that the gift of these names and these disciples can be for all of us a way into uh, seeing god in our world would you please pray pray with me holy god bless the hearing of this your holy word may it change something in us may it move us toward you and toward one another as we seek to love and live in this complicated world. As we gather around your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our scripture passage for today. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So as today is our moment for the wilderness, it seems appropriate to talk about two writers, two scholars, two faithful men who took seriously the gift of wilderness, of solitude and its silence. Uh, And I hope too that these two men, these two scholars, these two writers might help us find a connection to those 12 disciples and to be able to see ourselves in all of these stories watching for what God might be calling us to do. The first is Sigurd Olsen. He was known as the father of the Boundary Waters. His love for the wilderness began as a child when he would spend hours with his ear pressed to the ground, literally listening. He would listen to the rustle of the leaves and the pine needles, the song of the birds, the owls, the chickadees. As a child, he would lay on his back and look up at the clouds and he would wish that he could fly up to those clouds he would hear the honk of the geese and he would wonder where are they going and why his dad was a strict baptist minister the kind of father who had a very narrow understanding of where and when you can experience god in these very formal settings but Sig's experience in nature grew and grew, and it opened him up to other ways of experiencing God. His father only approved of three professions being a minister, a farmer, or a teacher. Sig had briefly considered becoming a missionary. Maybe he could seek out other wilderness areas in the world as a missionary. Farming would have been fine for him, but it just didn't feel right. He ended up teaching science at a local community college in Ely, Minnesota, where this stained glass window is on the front of your bulletin. And he spent much of his teaching career being one of those teachers who always says yes when students ask, can we have class outside? In the wilderness was his classroom, his sanctuary, his home. In order for the Boundary Waters to exist and to remain protected, there was a lot of legislation that was signed over the decades by quite a few different presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover, FDR, Truman, Johnson, Nixon, Carter, and Sig Olson was right there in the middle of all of it. He was considered one of those elder statesmen of Minnesota advocating for the protection of the wilderness saying more than 40 years ago, this this thing that sounds like it could have been written yesterday. He said, in the end, we turn to nature in a frenzied, chaotic world, there to find silence and oneness and wholeness, a spiritual release. What happened, though, to his surprise, was that the more time that Sig spent in the wilderness, the more time he felt he needed to spend advocating for the wilderness itself. Kind of like our wilderness guide, Dave, right, who spent a whole year in the Boundary Waters, never leaving the Boundary Waters, but for the sake of caring for that Boundary Waters wilderness area. Sig spoke before Congress, he shook hands with presidents, he stood before special committees, he was a leader on behalf of the wilderness in tense and unpopular times when some people in Ely, Minnesota were seeing how protecting the trees meant less logging jobs and prohibiting motorized vehicles meant selling fewer motorboats. There was an economic cost to protecting our wilderness land. But the more that Sig sought wilderness and looked for his own listening point, his own place of reflection and writing, the more Sig was tugged out into the world to protect and advocate for that wilderness that he loved. Now, Thomas Merton, on the other hand, he started out far from the wilderness. His life started out as noise. He, his longing for silence and stillness came suddenly, unexpectedly. In fact, when he decided out of the blue to become a monk, he was sitting on the floor of a friend's apartment, eating scrambled eggs and toast, drinking coffee after a long night of listening to jazz in clubs all throughout New York City, so loud that all you could really do was smoke another cigarette and be consumed by the sound. This was, of course, the late 1930s when no one thought any more of smoking, as Merton puts it, 41 cigarettes in one night until your throat is raw. Merton's desire for solitude came on so quickly that there was nothing to do but just say it out loud to his friends. And his friends were supportive, they didn't try to convince him otherwise, but maybe they just didn't know how to react. His friends were going to go on just like that, listening to jazz and spending their mornings recovering. But Merton was headed toward solitude. I've been to this monastery where Thomas Merton ended up spending the rest of the rest of his life. He finished a master's degree at uh, Columbia College in New York before he actually was able to join his Trappist monastery there in just outside Louisville, Kentucky. It's called Gethsemane Abbey, um, and all the monks there. Uh, at Gethsemane Abbey, this Trappist monastery. They're all vegetarian and they eat in silence. When I was visiting there, I remember this silence, this strange feeling, eating in silence with a room full of monks who are so used to eating in silence, they don't even notice your own awkwardness, your own acute awareness of their silence, your common silence together. Thomas Merton once he was there in Kentucky and he made his first vows as a monk he dreamed of something even more radical even more countercultural he had read about a monastery in Italy where it was almost all entirely people who had decided to live as hermits a whole community of people intentionally living in solidarity or in solita- in kind of these solitary lives and there's a ceremony which I find kind of curious. It's called the putting away of a hermit. And it's this ancient ceremony where a hermit is declared dead to the world. Not dead, but dead to the world. Someone has to bring him food on a regular schedule. I don't, I don't know all the details. The community walks down to the foot of the mountain just below the hermit's cave. And when the bishop finishes the prayers, the hermit climbs up his rope into his cave and pulls up the rope after himself. Thomas Merton dreamed of pulling up a rope after himself, of this solitary time alone with God. It would be the ultimate tag time, right? This thing that we do in the wilderness, time alone with God but it was a tag time, time alone with God that lasted for days or weeks or months, drawing you deeper and deeper into God's presence. I'd, I'd heard about Thomas Merton, I'd read some of his writings, i have been to his monastery, but I'd never read a biography of his life, and it's worth seeking him out, uh, either a biography on him or some of his spiritual writings. They're really true to life, it's not esoteric or Um, overly spiritualized. I mean, that's how we know that he was eating eggs and toast when he decided to become a monk. It's very true to life as a spiritual writer. And the biography that I read was actually a biography of two people. Um, This author was trying to make connections for us between Thomas Merton and Bob Dylan, a surprising connection. I picked it up to read in Minnesota in the wilderness because Bob Dylan's from Hibbing, Minnesota, very close to where we were this summer. So I thought this Bob Dylan story would be super interesting, but it was all this Thomas Merton stuff that caught my attention. Time alone with God, seeking out solitude. Thomas Merton spent 20 years asking and begging and asking and begging and asking and begging his abbot to let him have a hermitage. And finally, the monastery said yes. And so Thomas Merton built a little cinder block house, with an outhouse. Famously, a snake lived in his outhouse, uh, which would have been an abrupt end to my time as a hermit. And like Sigurd Olson, Merton found that the more time he spent apart from the world, living alone, the more the world tugged at him to engage. So while he was there in his hermitage, leading a prayerful life with God, having this time alone for, with God, Thomas Merton sought out newspapers and magazines and academic papers, anything that he could get his hands on in a world before the internet, relying on visitors and snail mail to bring him news of the world beyond. He wrote letters in response to to newspaper articles. He wrote books. He published again and again, responding to the late 1960s issues of race relations and the Vietnam War. He's well known for his interfaith, interreligious dialogue. He wrote so much poetry, and he listened to Bob Dylan on his record player. They didn't have plumbing at his hermitage, but he had a record player. And Joan Baez paid him visits in this little cinder block house. Letters poured in from around the world and speaking engagements. The world was tugging at him to step out of that solitude that he had so longed for. I think these two men, their lives, their search for solitude—it tells us a little bit about what it means to be a disciple. Two thousand years later, two thousand years about after Jesus calls these twelve disciples, we're still trying to figure that out. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Does discipleship mean, like Sig and Thomas Merton, does it mean solitude? Does does it mean time alone with God? Is God calling you to write, uh, to participate in civil, a civilized exchange of words in an uncivilized world? Is discipleship friendship? Is discipleship working in a hospital to heal wounds? Is it serving the homeless, the vulnerable, the quote unquote untouchable? Is discipleship visiting prisoners? Is discipleship seeking justice in the courthouse or on the streets? Is discipleship continuing your schoolwork? Can discipleship mean dropping everything to make a major shift in your life? I think discipleship could be any of those things. And here's, here's where I think we can dig into our scripture passage. It's a little boring, a list of names, but right there at the beginning, there is something to notice. Jesus gathers his 12 disciples, and when he does, he gives them authority He doesn't say, here's my database of all the people who are sick in Judea. Help me plot a course so that I can go and visit them all so that I can heal all of them. No, Jesus says, go, go out, meet the people, find out who's sick, heal them, work with them, be be with them. Jesus says, here's the power that I have, the power that God gave me, have this power with me. Do this with me. You can do the same things that God is calling me to do. Jesus said to them, and here's I, I like the way the the message version of the Bible puts it. Eugene Peterson's version of the Bible. He says, tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. I think that's a beautiful way to 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 name what discipleship might be tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. Jesus didn't consolidate power for himself. Jesus spread it out. He gave it away. Tend, tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. Sounds possible. Sounds like something we could do. Sounds beautiful, really. Messy, yes. Difficult, yes. Life-changing, yes. Tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. The 12 disciples are called to do just that. And if the number 12 in some way symbolically is part of, uh, it, it's, if the part signifies the whole, if the 12 signify all of us, then we can't help but see ourselves in this story. That that list of 12 names is actually a list that includes your name, that includes my name, that includes all of our names We can't help but seeing ourselves as people who are called to go and do likewise, to tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. Implicit in our call to discipleship, I think is this call to solitude, a call to silence, a call to be with God, to be alone with God. We all need that. We all need intentional ways of being with God. But like Merton and Sigurd Olson, God also tugs us from prayer to service, from solitude to community, toward this work of discipleship. And maybe God does it the other way around too, right? As we serve, we're called to prayer. As we create community, God calls us to experience the solitude and the time alone with God that all of us are searching for. I like I, I, really, I love wilderness writers, and I like the way that Ellen Malloy puts it. She's another wilderness author. She writes about the desert, the American um, Southwest desert, um, and she talks about what maybe discipleship means. She says, stay curious. Know where you are. Know your biological address. Get to know your neighbors, the people and the plants and the creatures who live there who died there, who is blessed, who is cursed, what is absent, what is in danger, what is in need of your help. Pay attention to the weather. Pay attention to what breaks your heart, to what lifts your heart, and write it down. That is a way toward discipleship. So may it be so for all of us that God might call us both to participation in the work of discipleship and also out into the wilderness, into the places where we might listen and be attuned in a new way to God who is with us. Amen.